Welcome to The District, a podcast by The Spectator World about politics and culture. My name is Matt Purple, and I'm joined by my coworker, Amber Athey. And we're also joined today by Grayson Quay. Grayson is the weekend editor over at The Week, and he also is a contributor to The Spectator World. He wrote a recent piece for us that we're going to be talking about today, and it's called The Battle for Based. And we're dealing with a very particular word here. This is the word based. Uh, it's, it's a very popular word in online culture, and especially among traditionalists on Twitter, uh, conservatives who you know take a more socially conservative point of view, uh, who are more skeptical of the libertarian wing of the conservative movement, if you can even still call it that. Uh, Based has become very popular, especially over the past few years. Uh, but lately, there's a, a new group that's come up by a couple of libertarians, Brad Palumbo and Hannah Cox, called Based Politics. And uh, they're trying to culturally appropriate the word. They're trying to take it back, which was met with vehement criticism online from the traditionalists. It started off one of these traditionalist versus libertarian street fights that you sometimes see on the right. Uh, we're going to get into all of that in a second. But, but Grayson, before we go there, my first question for you is this. I'm kind of, th- this is very much a Gen Z term, right? The word based. And I'm a, a middle millennial. I, I'm not on Twitter anymore. Uh, so, you know, sometimes I, under, I struggle to understand this. And I guess my first question is, why based? You know, I, previous generations have had hip and far out and cool and wicked and hella, and they have based. I mean, I just don't defend that a, a, as a matter of language. I mean, why is this word so important? Well, on one hand, I think there's the aspect that language always evolves and I don't have to like it, but it does happen. Um, And sometimes I don't like it. Uh, A lot of these terms that we see really defining our politics now, I think there's a really interesting dynamic where a lot of them kind of filter up through the, the black community predominantly and sometimes the LGBT community. And then those communities end up abandoning them and they become almost the exclusive purview of the right. So saying that someone is canceled, um, I remember several years ago seeing that as kind of a, kind of a catty term being used on Twitter um, for just celebrity drama and stuff like that. And now we have, you know, right wing think tanks holding consortiums on cancel culture. And, you know, same thing with woke. Um, no one on the left even says woke anymore. But now, you know, you have these French academics talking about they woke coming to destroy their society. Yeah. So I mean, in this case, what happened, I guess, is that um, the libertarian group run by Brad Palumbo and Hannah Cox decided that they were going to co-op based from the online right, um, which I think has generally been used in the past year or two to describe people who are like populist, nationalistic. Sometimes it goes into MAGA world with people who are in like sort of Trump mean culture. And there, I actually was kind of annoyed when I first saw it too, because I am sort of more on that populist swing of the party. And it felt kind of like cultural appropriation. Like why are these libertarians using this term that hasn't been used to describe their politics um, for the past couple of years. But in in retrospect, I see now that perhaps that was the reaction they were, they were hoping for was trying to rile up um, the Nat pop, right. And um, I mean, when you were digging into this use of the language, did you think that it was a a deliberate choice on their part to, um, to gin up, I guess, controversy in the hopes of getting people to subscribe to their new platform? Well, I didn't really have to, you know, even speculate about that. Brad kind of came right out and said it. I actually interviewed him a little bit for this piece. And he said specifically, um, 
you know, a crucial, I'll, I'll quote here actually directly, a crucial part of our project is to explicitly combat the nationalist conservative movement in a substantive and ideas-based way. We're redefining what it means to be based, whether they like it or not. Freedom is based. Catholic integralism and other forms of light theocracy are authoritarian and un-American, end quote, and presumably unbased. Okay, so usually language evolves rather organically, but this is more of a deliberate choice for them to redefine the word based. I mean, how effective is that usually when people try to to make a word fit their paradigm rather than something evolving more naturally? Well, it's interesting. I think you've seen something like uh, Chris Rufo has been kind of very open about his um, his plan to redefine critical race theory as this umbrella term under which we can put all of these uh, kind of cultural movements that that conservatives want to resist. And he sort of openly said that was what he was doing and I think has been quite successful at it. Based is interesting because it has had a very long journey to get here. Uh, it originates in kind of West Coast drug culture. I think there's some connection to the idea of freebasing cocaine, uh, where if you're based, you're high on crack and or you're acting like you're high on crack. And an equivalent today would be something like trippin' or tweakin' or wildin'. Um, and it's just the idea of kind of acting like uh, acting crazy as if you don't care uh, what anyone thinks of you. And it can mean like you're crazy or it can be almost admiring, like, wow, you're just out there doing your own thing. And there was a rapper named Lil B uh, who referred to himself as the based god who started playing up this definition of it. And as a result, this aspect of kind of not caring what anyone thinks and flying in the face of convention came to be associated with uh, kind of reactionary, often trollish uh, political discourse. And then what I think happened is that got combined with uh, a more kind of obvious definition of being based on or based in something, uh, which is where you get the association with traditionalism. I often describe myself as Wilden, so I understand that well. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, Grayson, um, the, the, putting aside the word itself, you have this larger war that's going on. Some would call it a civil war. Some would say there's nothing civil or kind of internecine about it between the libertarians and the trads. And what struck me is that for at least five years now, the, the trads have been making a very sustained theoretical and philosophical largely case against libertarianism and why it doesn't belong on the right, why it doesn't belong in American politics. The libertarians seem to me to have been slow to respond on this front. Um, setting aside somebody like Stephanie Slade, who I think has done good work on this, you know, who defends fusionism pretty regularly, most of the libertarians haven't really, I think, engaged with the post-liberals that much, certainly not to the sustained le level that the post-liberals have, have mounted their attack. Um, <clears throat> do you see this as an attempt, a greater attempt by them to finally kind of fight back to try to meet this new movement uh, head on? You know, do you ultimately see this as being about more than just a word? I think so. Um, you can kind of look at any uh, sort of quadrant of the the political compass, and each one thinks that a different quadrant is, are the ones running the country. Um, <laughs> you know, like the, uh, you know, like if you if you go to one of the left uh, quadrants, they think the country's essentially, you know, libertarian right, but the libertarian right thinks that the country's essentially authoritarian left or whatever. Um, so I think there's this attempt to kind of define yourself, whatever your group is, there's the scrappy resistance. Um, so to be based means like not going along with the crowd to a degree and 
you know, the, so kind of the right, the um, integralists or the right-wing populists or the economic nationalists or whatever you want to call it are the ones saying like, no, we're the ones not buying into all the, all the nonsense of, of liberal modernity. And, you know, you have the libertarians saying like, no, we're the ones pushing back against the real problems, which are, uh, you know, crony capitalism and big government. Uh, and then you have the progressives uh, claiming to be the uh, underdogs as well. So, I think there is this this universal desire to kind of be based, to be the ones saying the unpopular truth that no one will listen to, even if, in fact, you're saying the very, very popular truth that everyone else is echoing. Yeah, it strikes me that libertarians are much better at the policy level, right? Talking about their pet issues like drug reform, criminal justice reform, uh, eminent domain, civil asset forfeiture, all of which they've had some success with, even as the post-liberals have been rising as well. Uh, but they, they haven't quite met the moment in this online battlefield, right? They haven't quite, you know, stepped up and, and tried to be a part of this. And, you know, I know Brad, I've never met Hannah before, but she and I have interacted. And I, it'll be interesting to, um, to see what they'll come up with here. Uh, I'm curious how you read it from the post-liberal side, too. I mean, do you think that all this online skirmishing, all these Twitter wars that we're seeing... Uh, do you think that really matters or do you think the better approach to take is maybe the libertarian one where you focus on issues at the state level and, and try to agree and try to achieve more modest incremental successes? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head with the idea that libertarians tend to be really good on, um, you know, on policy on a kind of granular level, but that they have a little bit more of a problem kind of selling their vision uh, to people. I think that as this debate goes on, kind of among the uh, intellectual uh, echelons of the right that it will be interesting to see where it shakes out because I, so in my piece, I talk about uh, kind of the average Joe Rogan listener as this kind of median American, uh, at least male voter. And kind of the conclusion I came to is I think that that person probably agrees more with Brad when it comes to um, cultural issues and um, you know, someone like Sobermari would probably have a hard time convincing that guy that we need blue laws and to ban pornography. Um, but at the same time, uh, I think that the economic agenda that the kind of post-liberal common good conservative side has put forward, uh, which is a little less kind of doctrinaire in its, in its libertarianism, I think could have a, an opportunity to uh, really make some inroads. So it's just a, a question of who kind of wins the battle to control the narrative on the right. One of the interesting things that's played out online um, that I've noticed is um, you'll find that these traditionalist conservatives tend to interact, I think, more generously with elements of the progressive left than they do even with libertarians, even though ostensibly the libertarians and the traditionalists lean right. Um, but they have this overlap on issues like war and potentially health care and general um, ec economic tenets, um, more aggressive big government solutions to things like big tech encroachment and things like that. Um, but I, do you think there's a danger in the right populist traditionalist movement of being too cozy with the progressive left and kind of having this perception of, of selling out the conservative base. Yeah. Well, I think this is an area in which, you know, the, the idea of based politics, the idea of casting libertarianism as the voice crying in the wilderness might actually be uh, becoming more accurate as you have kind of this larger big government or a liberal consensus growing on the left and the right. Um, 
and I do think there's there's da- there are dangers involved there. Um, I don't know exactly how that would play out electorally. I'm not sure how kind of committedly libertarian uh, the base on the right is. I think with Trump, we saw that they weren't quite as much. Uh, quite as uh, big of devotees of Murray Rothbard as we might have thought after the Tea Party movement. Um, But I do think there's a risk in uh, both sides of the spectrum kind of embracing these more big government solutions, uh, especially when, you know, the integralist traditionalist side um, seems to have a very, very narrow appeal if you take its full uh, scope into account, right? I mean, it's a minority Catholic country, and of those Catholics, most of them have no interest in the integralist agenda. Right, and it's, you know, Grayson, I'm, I'm struck by polling as well, because we see that uh, <clears throat> early, last year we learned that a majority of Americans, including now a majority of Republicans, an overwhelming majority of Americans support gay marriage. Uh, big majorities also support marijuana legalization in the United States. Uh, our own, um, at The Spectator, our own Ollie Wiseman dug up a poll uh, from Gallup, which found that in 2006, uh, about half the country said it was very important that couples with children together legally marry. Today, that's down to 29%. That's a huge, huge decline. So clearly, there is this backsliding into social liberalism that's going on, not just in, in among elites, but among the general population. So it's it's clear why you would want a, a kind of tougher social conservatism, right? There is a socially conservative moment going on, especially, you know, we're embracing, we're kind of backsliding into social liberalism. We're also lonely. We're also kind of tense. We're, you know, there, clearly there, there's a feeling that something has gone wrong in American society at the same time. But the the claims that the post-liberals and especially the integralists make are much more audacious than that. You know, like you, you said at, at, at the tail end, calling for a Catholic state uh, or at least scrapping the American founding, you know, paying less attention to the founding fathers and the rule of laws that's understood in America, checks and balances. Um, do you think that, is there a difference between social conservatism and post-liberalism, right? I mean, is it, in order to to kind of oppose this, um, this momentum, do you have to be a, a post-liberal or is there room for a more moderate social conservatism? How do you see that? I'm not sure. And I think that's a big question we're going to face moving forward. You know, the question being like, are the ideas that were, um, that were kind of instantiated with the American founding, was that inevitably going to lead to drag queen story hour? Did we go wrong somewhere along the way? Um, I do think that the post-liberals have a leg to stand on in the sense that, um, you know, for a long time, even just, I would say 10 years or less ago, uh, there were, you know, a lot of libertarian institutions in this country that were also uh, quite socially conservative, you know, being socially conservative, fiscally liberal was a big thing. And I think in recent years, we've seen a lot of those libertarian institutions drift more to the left on those cultural issues. Um, You know, if you talk to people who did, say, the Koch Associate program five years apart, uh, you know, in maybe 2017 versus 2021 or something like that, um, I think you would see, hear a big difference in just kind of the tone of the discussion. Uh, so I think that there's that aspect of it. You, obviously, there's the critique of like, well, social conservatism at this point just means conserving whatever progressives thought 20 or 30 years ago. And I think there's some truth to that as well. So I'm sympathetic to the idea of needing some kind of rigorous intellectual movement to oppose the dominant uh, drift 
that we're seeing in the culture uh, kind of across our institutions. And I think that the post-liberals are, are well on the way to providing that. Um, but whether that's going to work and whether they're correct that we you know, do need to establish the holy American empire under uh, <laughs> the, the empire of Our Lady of Guadalupe, um, it, it remains to be seen. Uh, it's interesting that you bring up the Koch Associate Program because I was actually in that in 2016 and obviously turned out pretty radically different from um, probably how they hoped that I would be. Um, and even then, I, I do remember having some pretty crazy discussions with people who um, you know, talked about all drugs being legalized because there was uh, no difference between marijuana and heroin. And then there were people in the program who were um, uh, monarchists, and then you had the classic like anarchic capitalists. It was just a really bizarre time, and and even then, I think a lot of the programming was pretty socially liberal, fiscally conservative. Um, but I, I bring that up to say that I, I know a lot of other people like me who went through those programs and and somehow managed to avoid becoming libertarians. But um, the vast majority of them, you know, are are still sort of in that framework, either, either working for the Koch-funded organizations or espousing those beliefs. In order for this so-called new right to be successful, will they have to build a similar network, uh, at least in the D.C. area and, and in that um, political paradigm in order to be successful? First of all, it's good to meet a fellow uh, person uh, who had a lot of Coke money thrown at them to very little effect. <laughs> I wish it were more. Um, it wasn't quite as much as I would have liked. Maybe if they paid me more, I would have uh, turned out better in their eyes. Do the, yeah. know, do the Cokes have any idea this is happening by now, by the way? Because this is <laughs> such a commonly heard story in D.C. Like, yeah, I grabbed a bunch of Coke money and then I ran off to the traditionalist right. Yeah, well, it's... To, just to clarify for listeners, when you hear people say like, oh, you're a Coke to push, you got the Coke money, they paid maybe like half of a $30,000 salary. So it's not like you're getting rich off of this money. It's just t kind of incentivizing organizations to hire you. But yeah, anyway. exactly. Um, but yeah, I mean, when I did the Coke Associate Program, yeah, I was one of maybe two or th maybe three uh, kind of traditional uh, religious conservatives in there. Um and, you know, it was, uh, you know, pronouns in your Zoom name, whole nine yards. Um, but, yeah, I think, I think to your point about people uh, kind of taking the Coke money and then running off to the traditional social conservative right, I think there's a reason that happens. And it's that the money on the right does tend to be in the, you know, libertarian, fiscally conservative, socially liberal side, um, just because you have... Um, that's that's where the billionaires are who want to pour all their money into these think tanks and these fellowships. You know, I imagine you would see something similar on the right where kind of the neoliberals tend to have all the, the money and the institutional clout. And um, it's, it's something that I'm not sure there's a way around, right? You To build out a big network, you need the money. To get the money, you need the support of big business and big business has gone woke. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please check out more at spectatorworld.com. And if you'd like to listen to us, please check us out on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever podcasts are available.